Oh, that music's so cool. Guys, we are in the season of our church that I just love. Um, we're heading into the fall and the November season. We as a church, um, in a very tangible expression, serve vulnerable kids, moms, and families. And we, we do it through something called the One Child Project. That gave you, I think, some of the vision of what it is. Have you guys have heard of the One Child Project? Have you guys... All right, good, we have some people that are, that are new to this. And if you've been around for the last few months, this, this might sound new. And, and what it is, is it's a way for our church to really uh, step into the vision of being a church that stands for uh, those who are hurting, um, those who are vulnerable, especially kids and families. Um, in the book of James, it has this scripture that our church, we just take really seriously. This is really important to us. And it says in James chapter 1, verse 27, pure and genuine religion, like real religion in the sight of God the Father is this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And so the One Child Project is, is, a, is a way that we do this. Um, we partner with an organization called Olive Crest, and um, they, they are an organization that helps place foster kids in, into foster families, and they try to reconcile and restore the broken areas where, and restore kids to their original family if at all possible. And now, I don't know about you, but I just think that is so cool. And every year we do this Christmas party, and here's what it is simply. We get to throw a Christmas bash for 800, sometimes over 800 people. And as a church community, um, we do all the prep. How do you guys know that a, a party, a good Christmas party, takes prep work? Okay, a few of you guys know this. You're the organizers and the planners. I like that. That's my wife. I, I usually just do what she tells me. Now, as a church, what we saw, we saw um, an organization like Olive Crest that all year their social workers and families and kids are going through tumultuous times. And the social workers are always in the midst of helping place kids, but seeing kids that are coming from traumatic, unimaginable situations for many of us and helping try to find a good, a good home for them and working through those, just working through that journey. And by Christmas time, Christmas often has some of the most challenging situations for whatever, whatever reason in, in the courts and legal systems and with, and with kids in foster care. That's where a lot of things explode in the family. And we as a church uh, saw that and we said, man, is there any way that we could take the burden of a Christmas party off of the social workers, off of the families and just say, we will take the burden and do this for you. And so what our church has done over the last few years is we actually get individualized gifts for individual kids. Today, you can actually, as you leave, you can get a tag that represents a kid with their exact wish list. And I think you have to, you're supposed to, to keep it even. We're trying to keep like $25 um, limits and things like that. Usually people uh, you know, obey that. Sometimes people don't. But we, we, we want to get these gifts for these kids that they've requested. And you can provide a gift for a kid or a family. And we have all these families come together. It's unbelievable. You can also pick up all the details. We have like a, here's a, a kind of a brochure that you can, you can pick up, a flyer you can grab. And it has Gift Sunday where we all bring our gifts and we lay our gifts as, a, as kind of a gift of generosity of our church. Um, we don't have them wrapped. We have to see them and then we wrap them later. So bring your gifts on these gift Sundays. It has the dates. And then there's work parties because we want to get things ready. We have inflatables. We do a whole, whole rooms that are decorated in whatever theme. This year's theme is Toy Story. 
It's going to be awesome. You want to be involved and get connected any way you can. Our community groups serve. You can serve and find out more information. And then we have a giant wrapping party, taking all the gifts that we need to see what they are, make sure we have the right ones, and then we wrap them, usually the night before, night or two before, the date's right here, and then we throw a huge party. And this is what I didn't know when we first did this, did this uh, partnership. I didn't know that some of the kids that would be at this Christmas party were, are just taken out of, their, foster, out of their, their families. And for some of them, this is their first Christmas on their own or in a new family. And for some of them, this is their first Christmas gift they've ever opened. And uh, I'm telling you, being part of something like that, it doesn't get any better. And if there's any way we can serve these families, these kids... Um, I want to do it. So I would just ask you to, to partner with us and be part of that. We have another partner, uh, BJ's on South Hill, and I believe in Tacoma, are partnering and bringing in the food. It's fantastic. And this is our gift to the foster care community. I, I have a friend who works for Olive Crest, and I asked her, why, why does it matter when the church partners with something like this? Why, why does this matter to your community um, to partner in a, in a fashion like this with the church? And here was her response. Her name's Kate. Um, she says, I think, uh, hey George, I think it deeply matters to partner. It shows all of us that we are not alone in a very overwhelming battle for family unity and child safety. It often feels like we are emptying the ocean with a medicine dropper, slowly and unnoticeably in the foster care system. But being surrounded by the church and seeing the church excited about serving our kids and families, it feels like a weight is being lifted and we are surrounded by a village. I think God intended for the church to work together in this way, and he knows we each need each other. Amen? And before I move any farther, is there anybody who supports or, foster, or is a foster family or serves in our foster systems, whether they're social, uh, social workers, is there anybody in this um, room right now that's uh, involved? Would you put your hands up? Oh, we got some. Would you, would you be willing to stand up? And can we clap for them? Would you stand up? We want to recognize you and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys can grab a seat. I didn't, probably didn't know you were going to be embarrassed a little bit, but man, sometimes what you guys do is so important for the kingdom and goes unnoticed, and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for what you do and your hearts. I want to pray, and we'll, we'll jump into our, our uh, sermon today. Uh, would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your love. Your love uh, has transformed so many people. For over the ages, over the years, for thousands of years, God, you have picked up broken people, blessed them, turned them around. And God, we ask that you would turn our hearts today to you. Push out any distraction. Help us to focus on what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, what I simply want to do today is talk about God's vision for what the church can be for what a community be. So many times, I think in our culture, especially people are um, either afraid or have disdain toward like any kind of organized, well, anything, whether it's business or it's, some people, they don't like business, some people don't like corporations, um, some people don't like government, some people are very skeptical of organizations. And in our culture, and in our day and age in the Northwest, many times people are skeptical about the thing called the church. And you know what, if we think about the church in terms of just being like a, a corporate body or corporate entity, 
I can understand that and, and, and I can understand some skepticism. But when, when we understand the church as a group of broken people following Jesus, that our, ch- our church is a family that are imperfect people that welcome other imperfect people in, all of a sudden it changes. And I wanna talk about the vision that Jesus had for the church, not that the world might have or that we might see um, plastered around um, you know, our lives, but the, but the church, the body of Christ, the family of Christ, that, it, that is a, the broken and blessed and given people of God. Does that sound good? So what I wanna do is I wanna go to a simple, a simple picture that Jesus gives of the church and it's uh, found in Matthew 13. And here's the sermon. If I, I'm just going to give you kind of the outline. And uh, I, I want to try to keep it tight. And, and I really want to hit some of the important pieces. Because we got baptism after this. Which I'm so excited about. And if you're new after service, I'd invite you to our five-minute party. I'd love, that's where I get to meet some new people and new faces. Or if you're new-ish, love to meet you. It's just outside. I want to invite you to that. Um, but here's a picture Jesus gives I think is so beautiful of the church. Jesus says this in Matthew 13. Oh, I told you I'd give you the outline. We're gonna go through Jesus' vision. We're gonna look at how this was applied by a man named Daniel. And I'm gonna talk about three important ways that we can be a church that transforms our world. So here we go. Jesus used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. It's like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Uh, Some uh, places it's called leaven. Or yeast. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an agent that starts to transform um, flour when it's mixed together. And then, he's, and then it goes on to say this. Um, Even though she put only a little yeast, just a little bit in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like yeast. How funny is that? It's like leaven. It's like this insignificant little thing that gets sprinkled into, into flour and yet has a transformative effect. It changes the whole, the whole dough, the, the flour. It's a change agent and a little can change everything. And a lot of times people don't view the church that way. They view it as like a, uh, a problem in society or a side issue or something that has no transformative influence. But Jesus gives us a different vision. Um, me and my daughter have learned to make bread together. Um, we learned how to make bread. Some of you guys have heard me talk about this, but I wanted to, to give you an even better picture of it. Um, my daughter's six years old, and since she's been about three, um, I've been teaching her how to make this bread that I learned from my father-in-law. He taught me how to make it before he had the stroke, and now when we make this, it's kind of a cool family thing that we can do, and um, it's harder for him to cook uh, with his hands now, so we get to kind of be his hands um, with the bread uh, making. Now, when I, we first started making this bread, it's like he, Stan would make this amazing bread. It just filled the whole house. It smelled so good. How many of you guys like the smell of fresh bread? And then this gluten-friendly world, everyone's like afraid. Like we love the smell, but we're afraid of the, of the bread. But man, when bread's made really good, it's so hard to resist it. Even if you're gluten intolerant. I know people that are like, I don't care. You know, uh, I must have the bread. And um, me and my daughter, we, we went to the foray, foray of, of bread making and we were learning it. And I remember having a few tries. And we had some ups where we made some really good bread. And we had some downs where it didn't go so well. I remember one time, um, every, every time I make this bread, I have to create like a, like a culture. Um, the, for 24 hours, there has to be a, a little bit of yeast with a little bit of flour that creates the starter 
for the bread. What's that? He's lying. Don't listen to him. No, that's my father-in-law. He's right. He's totally right. <laughs> he corrects us all the time. Um, it's, a, it's good. It's my sanctification. Um, so we make this starter, or omega, if that's what it's called, and, and it has to be 24 hours, 8 to 24 hours, and then that next day, uh, you, you, you start making the bread in full, and you use more flour and more yeast, um, and I woke up, and I forgot, I was like, oh, I need to get the starter going, so I ran out, and got everything, and I got the, the flour, I got the salt, I got the water, and I forgot the yeast. And the next morning, like, we were getting things ready, and we're getting it ready for people coming over. My daughter's helping me. And uh, she's like, Dad, this kind of flour feels funny. The, the, the bread, the dough feels funny. I'm like, it'll be fine. And we put it, and I'm, I noticed it too. I'm like, it's kind of floppy. It's not, this doesn't look right. But I put it in the oven. I'm like, it'll be fine. You just put it in the oven, and it'll come out great. And later, 25 minutes later, when we pulled it out of the oven, it was this, like, nasty-looking bread. It was burnt in places. It was super flat. It smelled weird. It smelled kind of sourish. It didn't, there was nothing good about this bread, and I was kind of, like, trying to be positive, like, oh, this will work. And Novella's like, oh, Dad, that's some bad bread. That's really bad bread. And I was like, ah. And uh, she was right, of course. And, it, and it, it, it didn't work, and what I'd forgotten was the yeast. And the yeast has this transformative... Um, work that it does in the dough. Um, Jesus says that the church is like yeast. And yeast, when you use it, uh, it just comes in a you know, bottle like this nowadays. And you put this together and it creates this culture. And what it does is it allows carbon dioxide and gases and oxygen to like um, transform the bread. And one of the things that you might not know that you like about bread, I didn't know I liked about bread, but what yeast does is it creates these air bubbles and the gas bubbles that like create an aroma for the bread. So when you bite into a good piece of bread, you're tasting what the yeast have, has created and there's an aroma, there's a scent that fills your nose. Unless you can't smell anything, then you don't know what I'm talking about. It's okay, I'm colorblind. If you're smell blind, that's fine. Um, but when you, when you taste good bread, there's a flavor in your taste buds and that you smell. And when you're making this stuff, I want to show you guys what Jesus was talking about. Um, I actually brought some uh, two, two cultures of dough. One is without yeast. It's got no leaven in it. And the other has what I'll call the leaven from heaven. It makes the dough work, okay? So I'm going to show you guys. My hands are going to get super messy. But if you know anything about being part of church, it's messy. If you love people and serve people, like life gets messy. So here's the first. This is the dough without, um, without any yeast. Like, it's bad, okay? This is the dough. There's no yeast. That's none, there's nothing in here, okay? And uh, it's, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any air bubbles in it. I don't know if you can see that, but there's no air bubbles. It's just solid kind of blob here. This is not, not good stuff. This would make lame bread. Okay, now let's go to the... I hope, I hope it still works. Yes, it did. Yeah. George, you did okay on this one. My father-in-law will let me know if I really did. Okay, now this is bread with leaven and yeast in it. You guys see this? This has got air in it. This is amazing. Check this out. Um, it is so pliable. Like this is, this is where it's at. So you could take something like this, put it in an oven, and it doesn't really matter if you put like oil or... So, like you just put this in an oven, cook it for 25 minutes. It will be delightful. 
It'll be amazing. I, I want to cook this right now. I have dropped it too many times, so I'm not going to cook this stuff. But this is, this is dough that has yeast. All right? So I'm going to pull this out. This is the world we live in. In the world we live in, there's really four ways that the church has been taught or the church has approached culture. So the, the culture of the world you live in, like um, the world that, that your life is involved in. And you, how many of you guys uh, work during the day or have some kind of job? Students, I would consider that. A stay-at-home moms and dads, like that's, that's heavy work. Business people. Um, how many of you guys are like, I'm all of those things. <laughs> I'm doing all of that. How many of you guys in the education world? We, we found a lot of people in our church are educators, our healthcare. How many healthcare people out there? I mean, we got an amazing church. Your calling is so important. And the world you, you're called into is, Jesus says, is like this. It's like dough. And that we're supposed to be like this church. That, that okay, we're gathered, like here we're gathered today in this, in this awesome building. And uh, this has been an amazing, what a gift that there's been some amazing people have come together to create a space like this that we can partner in. But the church isn't just a gathering. We're not, the, the, the word, Greek word for it is ecclesia, the gathering. We are to gather, but we also are to diaspora, which means to scatter. The church gathers to scatter, and we're supposed to be like this yeast that gets sprinkled into the dough and become a transformative agent. Now here's the four ways that a lot of times the church has operated. I'll make this really quick and then I'll get into the, the practical stuff, okay? But the way the church has functioned in society often has been like this. The churches will see themselves with the world and they'll see, they'll see the world and they'll be like, ooh, the world is gross. We condemn the world. I condemn it and so I separate it. So like they're like, oh, here's the church and we need to protect the gospel and so here's the world and here's the church. For those of you over here, you see? Separate. Eh? There we go. Okay, making sure everybody can see. We're separate. Now, if we're, the world's evil. We've got to separate ourselves. There's no influence in the world that way because the world's scary. It's dark. And there's some truth there, but they take the approach that we need to be separate from the world. The other approach is um, to conform to the world. And what happens when we conform to the world is here's kind of the world that you might live in and whatever that, that means for you personally, business, education, healthcare, you know, stay at home, building the home, student, whatever it might be. And we conform to the world. So it basically says we're gonna change to the world and the world's gonna influence the leaven. The world's gonna transform the yeast rather than the other way around. And Jesus said that the yeast is supposed to transform the dough. And so a lot of times people are like, man, I just need to conform, I need to compromise. The world's, it's so strong, the current, and the church is so outdated. Like it doesn't, the church is so outdated, it doesn't really have anything. That's pretty good dough right there. <laughs> the church doesn't have anything to offer, so we conform. The other way that church has tried to deal with the world and culture is to control the world. To control the world, not just condemn it, not um, conform to it, but to control it. And this is, you know, you've seen this in movements like the immoral majority or, or where churches like, you know, through politics or through money or through uh, business or through society, we try to control it. Like we want to be the dominant force to control the world. And, and what can happen is like, it's like, we're going to control you. And it's like, ah, do the right thing. And then that, that's when Christians get shocked when the world acts like the world. And they're like, 
I can't believe it. Can you believe that person doesn't pray? Can you believe that person doesn't go to church? Can you believe that person? I can't believe it. And, and to which Jesus would be like, yeah, it's the world. <laughs> it doesn't yet follow me. And we, expect and, try to, and we expect people to be like us and we control them if they don't. When you look at experiments like this in history, this is like where things like the Inquisition happen or the Crusades where we need to control and often people will kill in the name of Christ. And when Jesus said, no, no, you're supposed to love your enemy. The fourth way is to have compassion in the world. And that's when we say, God, send me. Let's be leaven and influence a broken and dying world around us. Let's go into it. Let's love people. Let's not just be separate, but in. We'll be different. We're not supposed to be like the world and conform to it, but we don't have to condemn the world. We don't have to control it. Amen? Okay, you guys tracking with me? I don't want to bore you. I just want to give those kind of, that's a framework to understand. Now, the church gathers to scatter. You and I are called to be sent into the world. What world have you been sent into? What does that look like for you? If this is true, something really, really important is true. It means that your week, Monday through Saturday, is as important as Sunday. Your calling as a teacher, a nurse, a plumber, a, a, a parent, a student is as important as a call to be a pastor. There's not like a hierarchy like pastor or ministry is like the really important thing. If, if you're a business person or if you're an educator, your work in the world, God wants you to do good work and show the world that like, hey, this is, this is how God designed us to do good work so that we can show that there's a good God behind our good work. And when you are doing business, you're creating economic um, flourishing for the culture. When you're an educator, you're helping minds grow. When you're raising kids, you're, you're contributing to society in a huge way. You guys tracking? The people of Israel were in a moment where they had a choice between those four ways. My ministry's messy, right? You have to forgive my messy hands. Um, they had a choice to condemn the world have con- and contempt for it control it, conform to it, or have compassion. And there's a moment where God's people were taken out of Babylon, or excuse me, out of Israel, and they were sent to Babylon as exiles. The best, the brightest were sent away from home. And that meant that these exiles were put into a culture that was so dark and so wicked. I mean, there was real evil going on in this world. Um, and they were put into schools and into a culture that worshipped totally different gods, that had totally different values, that did um, different traditions that, that, that made them sick. And, and Israel, God's people, felt stuck in Babylon, in Babylon until the prophet Jeremiah wrote these words. Check this out. This changes everything. And I, I, this has really changed my life. So Listen to this. In Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah wrote these words. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Seek the peace of the idolatry-ridden culture, of of a maniacal, genocidal, tyrannical leader named Nebuchadnezzar a horrible leader and a horrible government that has enslaved their people. God says, no, 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 you're not stuck. 
I've sent you into that dark place to be a light. Seek the peace and prosperity of the cities to which I have sent you. You think you've just been pulled out and that God, that I have no power. I'm sending you to change this culture because if you change that culture, not only will you flourish, but the world that is dominated by the Babylonians will be changed through you. A minority can change and transform the majority, not by controlling it, not by condemning it, and certainly not by conforming to it, but by having compassion in it. Amen? So, you guys want to get practical? Let's get really practical. I want to read you this story of Daniel, who was one of the exiles in Babylon, who took that, that, that prophecy, you were to be a, a, uh, an agent of peace in the cities to which I've sent you. Daniel took that to heart. Daniel was one of the uh, exiles. He was one of the um, young men that were taken captive to worship gods he did not like. Uh, he was sent to the um, he was sent to the school of witchcraft and, and wizardry in Babylon, and he held. And here's the interesting thing: he was able to hold on to his beliefs. Sorry, I'm cleaning my hands a little bit. Some of you like OCD people are like, "Ah, oh, it's so gross." Um, it's all right. It's messy. Um, and he was able to maintain his faith in a very dark and contrary culture. He was able to be countercultural a minority in a majority culture. So check out this story. I think this is really powerful. Entering this story, we see that uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar, tyrannical, genocidal king who has ruined Daniel's life and destroyed his country, destroyed his temple, moved him from his family. He gets furious and angry because he has a dream and and he gets scared. What does this dream mean? And he goes to his magicians, of whom Daniel would be considered one of them, his viziers, his wisdom people. And he goes and says, tell me the dream. Interpret the dream. You're my magicians. I've paid for your whole education. Your whole life is trained for this moment. Tell me what this vision is, what this dream is. And they, were, they came up with all these excuses. They're like, we don't know. And this is, the king's never done this. And they have all these excuses. And all of a sudden, we enter this story in verse 12 of Daniel chapter 2. And the king was furious when he heard all their excuses and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed and because of the king's decree men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends because they are part of the magicians right they're part of the school of witchcraft and wizardry in Babylon now when Arioch the commander of the king's guard came to kill them the executioner comes Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion Notice it doesn't say he handled it with um, fear and stupidity. If I was, this is, have you, any of you guys had an angry boss? Angry boss who can't control his temper and is very impatient? Well, Daniel's facing that. And one thing to notice about Daniel is he is not a pastor. He is not a prophet. He is a government worker. He's not a pastor. He's not like, he's not like me. He's someone who's in the workplace with an angry boss who's going to kill him. And he handles it with wisdom and discretion. He doesn't panic. This is his response. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told them all that had happened. And Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time from the king to tell the king what the dream meant. So he, instead of running away from the problem, do you notice this in the story? What does Daniel do? He runs toward the problem. Christians. I know we got people who aren't yet Christians here and I love that about our church, but Christians, listen up. Listen up. 
We're not to run away from the problems in our world. We're to run to them and bring Jesus, to bring God's wisdom into those situations. Amen? And you know, there's something else here. Daniel must have been, had so much good coming out of his life and been so honorable and respectful and done such good work that Arioch listened to Daniel. Daniel's like, what's going on? And you could tell Arioch doesn't want to kill Daniel. He doesn't want to, and you know, he could, Arioch could have been like, sorry, this is the command, you're dead, off goes your head. But if there's any possibility for Daniel to save himself and others, Arioch's like, yeah, go talk to the king. Isn't that interesting? He has, he's a person of influence. So check out what happens in verse 17. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their fellow Jewish leaders in the, in the same school, working in the same government. He tells them what happened. And then he urged them to ask God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So I want to get really practical for the end of our, our sermon here. If you have your notes, you can pull them out. There's three things I want to cover. I'm going to emphasize the first one. First one is partners of peace. We need to find partners of peace. The second is we need to find people of peace. I'll explain that in a second. The third thing, we need to help create places of peace. And when I'm saying peace, I'm talking about shalom, like God's peace that comes in and changes us. The first thing is looking for partners of peace. If we want to be leaven that gets sprinkled and sent in the world and we're not stuck in the world, we need to learn from Daniel how to find partners of peace. Partners of peace are are people that are believers, um, that might share a similar calling or there might be part of your spiritual family or community group and support you and pray for you, encourage you, love you, and, th- and they are interested in your calling. Like Sunday is not just the main thing that we do as a church, that your life uh, for the rest of the week, six, six other days of the week, matter to God. And you need to have a spiritual family that supports you. Look for partners of peace. One of the biggest ways for our church is our community groups, our spiritual families to find that support. And I would encourage you, get in a spiritual family. But one of the interesting things here is the, the, the partners of peace for Daniel in, in verse 17 are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are fellow Jewish leaders and, the, and Daniel, he doesn't do this alone. When he's faced with a problem, faced with an issue, he runs to his partners of peace and shares the problem with them, shares what's going on and asks them to pray. And it doesn't say that all three of these guys went to the same synagogue. In your world of education, in your world of business, in your, world, in your specific world, you know and you're called to. God has called other people of peace. Sometimes we feel like we're alone. I'm the only one and I'm stuck. God has brought others for you to connect with and pray with and encourage each other with. And the, one of the first things is find those partners of peace. Look for them, pray for them. Ask God to, to give them to you so you, you can be encouraged and not alone. What happens when you do the, the rugged individualism of America and say, no, I'm gonna do this alone? What ha- what's that? Spir- there's spiritual death there. It, like you, you're alone. You, you, you get discouraged instead of encouraged. You sometimes make 
poor decisions because you have fear and, and panic or I don't know what to do or you, let, or you don't make a decision that you need to make and you're afraid to make it in your world because in your world, here's the reality, you are in a world that you, you're asked to, to do things that I can't condone or the church can't condone and the church can't control and I can't control and you can't control but you can influence and you need partners of peace to be with you to help you in those times, Amen? Find the partners of peace. Look for them and gather together and pray together. Find your three people, your four people. Even if it's just a few, find them. Even if it's just one. And that's why community groups and that's why in your work and calling it's so important. And then Daniel prays with them. He tells them the problem. Here's what we're facing. We're dead if we don't find a solution. And you know, if you're stuck in your world, sometimes it's like, well, I knew this was going to happen. My world's crazy. I knew I was going to die. I knew I was going to lose my job anyway. And so you don't fight to serve and influence the world that Jesus has sent you into. And Jesus fought to influence his world, did he not? But he fought with with the spiritual weapons of peace. I think this is an amazing moment for those of us who want to just resign ourselves. Well, this was going to happen. Daniel goes to his his partners in peace and says, pray. Pray. Ask God to change the situation. Reveal it. Because in the praying, God changes us. He grows us. This is discipleship. Learning to trust God when it's hard, not just when it's easy. Not just when we're gathered and we're like, yeah, look what, you know, we're worshiping songs. It's like on Tuesday when it's like, I might lose my job. Partners of peace. Amen? And you encourage and you challenge each other. That's third thing you do with partners of peace you encourage each other Um, find those people encourage and challenge and help each other and then share your stories with partners of peace if we didn't have the book of Daniel as a story that had been written down and given to us we wouldn't know as well how as a church we can have compassion and influence in a crazy world like Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon How many of you guys, you look at our world and you're like, man, it looks more like Babylon than it does the kingdom of God. And God wants to send us to bring the kingdom in there. All right. Here's uh, the last two I want to hit. People of peace and places of peace. People of peace are receptive, non-believing people. They're open though. They're like Arioch. They're like Daniel's co-workers who didn't know God yet. They're Babylonian. uh, And even you can make an argument that Nebuchadnezzar became a person of peace. Daniel went and met with him and, he, and he, like, he laid his case before him and said, just give me time. Let me go talk with my God. I will try to get your answer. And he doesn't say that it's impossible. He says, let me talk with God and I'll see if I can get an answer. I'll see if I can help you with your vision, with your dream. I just think that's so amazing that Daniel lived in such a way, he did such good work that it showed that there was a good God working through him and he earned the right with Arioch as a person of peace and with Nebuchadnezzar to share his faith in a way that made sense. Isn't that unbelievable? There are people of peace in your world and my world that are waiting to be invited to the kingdom of God. I'm telling you guys, next week we have um, Krista Linden is going to be sharing for a little bit her vision for this place, create a place of peace. Um, I'm, there's a message I've been working on for quite a while that it's a message of hope, healing, and peace for anybody who's far from God. And I, I want us to invite our whole community out next week. Neighbors, coworkers, friends, family members. Like it's gonna be a moment in time for people who are receptive and open 
to maybe hear the gospel in a way that makes sense to them for the first time. Um, I, I want to kind of close with this thought. Um, when we first moved into the station house, we as a church got together and said, are there people of peace in our life that we need to invite? It's about three, four years ago when we moved into our old building. And people wrote names of loved ones, friends, coworkers, um, family members, husbands, wives, kids. And they wrote them on this and began praying for them. Just praying, God, would you, would you heal them? Would you help them? Would you, would you come into their life? And, and, and then we started inviting and a life and church of inviting. And did you know that inclusion requires invitation? Can't be an inclusive church if you don't invite people. You don't bring them in. You don't show up. You don't say, hey, we're a family that's inclusive. I got flakes flying everywhere. This is, this is the church. Messy. But I, there's names on here. Like there's three names written on this one. Five on that one. There's one here. Some of you just might be names that are on these tags that someone prayed for you loved you cared for you and has been leading you and and begging God to lead you to a community of belonging can we do this next week there are names on our hearts are there not that we can bring into a radically inclusive community a Jesus community and next week is an amazing opportunity like Invite them into your life. Invite them into your spiritual family. But I want to encourage you, next week, let's pack this place out. we got three services, 8, 30, 10, 11, 30. Let's pack it out next week. I want the community to hear the message of peace. Because what happens when you have partners of peace, working with people of peace, you end up creating places of peace. Homes, workplaces, neighborhoods, um, parks places of peace where God uses the church and he takes us like a bottle of leaven when we gather here and we worship him, we encourage one another and then he takes us and he scatters us in the week. We're not stuck, we're sent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we're so grateful for you. Would you use our church, would you scatter us into this world? to transform it. I just pray for more and more people to come to know you and to be sent back into the world that they're not stuck, God, that you want to use them. Help us to see that we are meant to be where we're, at, where we're at, to bring healing and love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.